It is the podcast, Vandermeer's View. We've had some fun with it so far, and today it's going to be even more fun because I've got Joe Zagacki on, and Joe Zagacki is the voice of the Miami Hurricanes. I used to work with him. We were at the mic together. I did play-by-play. He did the color commentary, but he's a great play-by-play man, and he's done the games ever since I left when I started with the Houston Texans in 2002, and he actually was on the broadcast years before, which we will get into, working with the legendary Sonny Hirsch down in South Florida. And Sonny was at the mic when the Hurricanes won the national championship for the first time. Why am I focusing on Miami? Well, why not? You know, I've got history there. Plenty of Hurricanes have played for the Houston Texans, including Andre Johnson, Vince Wilfork. The list goes on and on. Lamar Miller's on the team now. Fabo Kamalu, Stephen Morris is on the team. So this is fun to catch up with Joe and talk about 30 for 30 on the Canes, which I think we all saw. If you listen to this podcast, you probably saw it. If you didn't, well, watch it because it's fantastic. And it's not just about every week on ESPN 1, 2, or the Ocho, or whatever they've got. And we get into some stuff about the great Canes teams, about broadcasting in general, college baseball, little college basketball, college sports in general, some of the great places that Joe has been, some of these outstanding stadiums, that he's called games at because he's been with the Hurricanes all those years. You can imagine Notre Dame, Catholics and convicts. And listen in because he doesn't even say the name of that game as we all know it because he's a true Miami guy and Hurricanes don't really call it that. It's just one of those things. So enjoy Joe Zagaki, our guest this week. Joe, welcome to the show. How's it going? uh, Everything's great. Good to talk to you. And uh, those were some of the times in my life when uh, you and I worked together. Well, we had some great times. And I always tell people this. Let's start right here. It's the best place to start. 42 in a row. You and I were at the microphones for 42 consecutive wins when baseball won out to finish the season and win the national championship in 01. Football won out all the way through to win the national championship in 01, and basketball started 14-0. We broadcast 42 consecutive games without a loss. And, Joe, I think it's a record that will never be broken. I mean, it's going to be hard to imagine some other school, and it's got to be a school, right, able to pull this off. (laughs) That was an incredible run. We didn't know what it felt like to to lose a game. And then uh, I kind of felt like maybe we were the good luck charm. Uh, I think ultimately they lost at UConn. I think maybe basketball lost at UConn mm-hmm. on a tough, uh, in a tough game. But, uh, yeah, that was a great run. The baseball, they went from April, the middle of April, all the way through the College World Series without ever losing a game. That was so weird, too, because that team, I was reflecting on that because you have the College World Series going on and everything, and I thought, you know, that team wasn't that great. Like, you had been around Miami baseball forever, and that particular team in 01 wasn't so good, but they got hot in the postseason. Charlton Jimerson, who played for the Astros eventually, he got super hot. He wasn't much more than a defensive replacement. I mean, what are your recollections of that squad? Well, in uh, April, they played Cal State Fullerton, and the unthinkable happened. Cal State came to Mark Lane Stadium and swept Miami in a three-game series, and that had never happened. And uh, after that, Coach Morris had a, a meeting with the team, and they never lost another game. Uh, you mentioned Jimerson, and they had all these uh, unlikely players uh, played great for them in the World Series. Jimerson went over the center field fence to make a great play. Uh, Greg Lovelady was the backup catcher, mm-hmm. and he got hot, and he was nearly the, the World Series MVP. Uh, Jim Bird Jr. made a great catch in right field against <laughs> USC to seal the game. And, and in those days, I don't think uh, 
uh, they had started super regional play yet. So the path to the World Series was a little bit easier. Joe, when you saw that 30-for-30 stuff on the Miami Hurricanes, what was your reaction to that series? I know it must have brought up a lot of memories. And before we even get into that, your history broadcasting Hurricanes games goes back to working with the late, great Sonny Hirsch, right? How did you get started in all that? Uh, 1983, yeah, all the way back to 1983. was uh, So I was um, 20, 21 years old. And... Uh, working at WIOD, and those were different times where uh, broadcasters were pr- primarily used across all platforms uh, doing talk shows and games. Uh, we really weren't so much into all the ex-players. At any rate, uh, WIOD, and, and the University of Miami really never had uh, a great home, a great flagship station. They kind of bounced around, and IOD was... Uh, somewhat reluctant to take them because they had the Dolphins, but then they made a deal with the University of Miami. So I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, they made me the pregame and postgame host, produced the pregame, put me on the sidelines, and just, you know, did all the jobs like every other broadcaster in, in those days. Worked the sidelines, did the pre and the post, uh, eventually became Sonny's wingman as the, the, the color commentator, uh, continued in that role with you, and then... Uh, when you went on to the Houston Texans, uh, I moved over one seat, went from the assistant coach to the head coach. So uh, it's been a pretty good run, uh, that's for sure. Uh, lots of championship games, lots of bowl games, lots of thrills, and uh, some great memories with some, uh, some characters, that's for sure. Do you think the 30 for 30s painted a pretty good picture of the, the rise of the Miami Hurricanes, the dip when obviously you had the pre-Butch Davis era when they had – uh, a little bit of a tough time with the major scholarship reductions, and then the rise again. How did you think it was all depicted on 30 for 30? You know, I think uh, <laughs> I think Billy Corbin did a great job with both of them. And I think both of them have been assets to the University of Miami for the most part. Um, I think a lot of kids look at it, you know, even today, and say, wow, look at the way they played. Uh those were uninhibited players. We want to play that way. And so uh, I think, you know, some of the antics that, they, that the Hurricanes performed in those days, uh, people got angry with today, they'd probably be celebrated. Um, so I think Billy Corbin did a really good job with those 30 for 30s. I, I will say, uh, I think some of them, uh, some of the stories got a little bit exaggerated. Uh, the, the Hurricane players were very popular in uh, – 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, those guys in 87, 86 and 87, Jerome Brown and Michael Irvin and Melvin Braden and Perriman and all those guys, uh, they were big stars. But they, they, were, they were claiming they were getting into the clubs ahead of the Dolphin players. Mm-hmm. Now, the Dolphins were, you know, Dan Marino, Jim Jensen, uh, all those guys, Clayton and Duper. Yep. The Dolphins have always been number one in this town with a, a very close second to the University of Miami. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, as I was watching it, because I thought, well, didn't Marino play then? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And, and then the second one came along, mm-hmm. and I think the second one is okay. I kind of, But I felt like, you know, I felt like the players in the second one were like, well, okay, those guys in the 80s had their, their moment. Now we want ours. And uh, I'm kind of of the belief that at some point you've got to move forward. So right. I think that's what Mark Richt is doing. He's honoring the past, but he's moving the program forward. 
Right. Well, we've had a lot of hurricanes playing for the Houston Texans over the years, and the most prominent, of course, is Andre Johnson, who was inducted, the first ever inductee to the Ring of Honor here at NRG Stadium. And, you know, I always tell the story about Andre Johnson. The first interaction I had with the Miami Hurricanes was at a scrimmage in August of 1999, and you guys told me, I'm watching with you and Don Bailey, and you say, oh, he's redshirting, and that blew me away, that a guy like that, that physically well put together could redshirt. But what about some of those athletes they had then, Joe? I mean, when you look at Santana Moss and Reggie Wayne and you know that first Butch Davis recruiting class, not the very first one, but the first one that blew everybody away, they had some great NFL talent on that team. No, my goodness, probably the best ever. And that's kind of the difference between where they are now and where they were. Uh, you used the example of Andre Johnson. I remember standing there that day, and uh, the defensive backs were calling him Muscle Man, but they were taunting him. They were saying, come on, Muscle Man, let's see what you got. Come on, Muscle Man, let's see if you can get off the line of scrimmage. And he redshirted, a Hall of Fame player, redshirted. Uh, I think Ed Reed also redshirted at the University of Miami. And now we can't keep guys on the roster that want to turn pro that are fifth and seventh round draft choices. So I think that's one of the present problems. But the players that Butch brought through from uh, Andre Johnson and Moss and Dan Morgan, Damian Lewis, Clinton Portis, Ken Dorsey, Jeremy Shockey, Sean Taylor, Ed Reed, uh, Mike Rump, DJ Williams, Jonathan Vilma, uh, uh, Brian McKinney, it just goes on and on. Every player was better than the next guy. And uh, I think each of them had uh, really good pro careers. I think some of them probably could have been even better in the pros, but they kind of took some of the uh, uh, wild personality that they developed in college into the, into the pros with them. Uh, but I don't know that we're ever going to see a collection of talent like that again. And why is that, Joe? I understand why it might be difficult to put together in South Florida, but let me ask you that direct question. Why is it so difficult now in South Florida to get even close to that and why not in college football as a whole? Sometimes we'll see a bunch of Alabama players taken in the first round, but it's nothing like the run that Miami had year after year in the early O's. Well, one, probably the percentages say it's cyclical, that you know, you're going to have Miami had two runs, actually. Uh, the one that you and I experienced where they won 34 games in a row in uh, the late 90s and into the early 2000s, and then back uh, during the Jimmy Johnson era from 85 uh, through – 88. They did it twice. Uh, but I think the reason it's hard now is, uh, especially down here in South Florida, one, uh, you have at the Division One level the FIUs and the FAUs in Central Florida and South Florida, and they're picking off players. And maybe it's one or two. It's not. They shouldn't really be competing with Miami for recruiting, but they might get one guy that 15 years ago went to Miami that was under the radar like a Santana Moss who blossoms into a great player. Now he blossoms into a great player someplace else. But I think the biggest reason, Vandy, uh, the one that I talk about all the time, is it is much harder to keep your team together. And people, I think someone came out the other day and said, Miami's one of the programs that is underachieved according to the NFL draft. And uh, they've had too many guys leave early. They cannot keep a team together. And this year we'd be a lot better with uh, Kendrick Norton and R.J. McIntosh as defensive tackles. Both those guys left, one for the fifth round, one for the seventh round. Wow. In 2001, that was unheard of. So I think it's much harder to keep your team together and much harder to redshirt players. Wow, what a great point that is right there. 
I mean, that's incredible. Now, tell me something else, because back in the day, in the day, in our day, in the early O's, the 2001 National Championship team, you had a lot of guys, a lot of people thought, oh, that's all South Florida kids staying home. But you look at Ed Reed from Louisiana, Reggie Wayne from Louisiana. You look at Shockey from Oklahoma. What was that about the ability to recruit nationwide? And the O-line, I think almost everybody was from somewhere else, it felt like. Yeah, you know, I think uh, that is a great point. It's been very frustrating to me to watch, uh, especially for, you know, I think the difference between Mark Richt and Al Golden and, and Randy Shannon, one of the biggest differences is, when, when Mark Rick does something, people believe him because he's won. So when he goes to Georgia and gets a wide receiver and a running back and a quarterback, everybody says, oh, what a great find. When Al Golden went to New Jersey for a linebacker or whatever, why is he doing that? We've got <laughs> the players here in South Florida. And I just became an avalanche. And while we have great players in South Florida, you cannot fill out your entire roster with just South Florida players. It's impossible. We generate great wide receivers, great defensive backs, good linebackers, pretty good defensive ends, rarely great defensive tackles, rarely offensive linemen, and rarely quarterbacks. We get a quarterback here and there, but you got to go elsewhere. And I think one of the things that Miami did really well uh, in order to recruit nationwide is the brand, the U brand, the orange and green, Everybody knew who the University of Miami was. People wanted to play for him, whether it was Reggie Wayne in Louisiana or Ken Dorsey in California. And I think one of the reasons why was because, and this is always my beef with the Gators, Miami went outside of Florida to play. Miami went to Oklahoma. They went to Notre Dame. They went to Washington. They went to Texas. They went to Texas A&M. They went nationwide to play. And, and I think when you go nationwide, you create a brand now. People loved them and hate them, but still they followed them. And that's, uh, I think, why they were able to get players outside of this area. And I think it's still important to be able to, to get the best players outside of South Florida while also showing a lot of love to the guys in, uh, from Dave Broward and Palm Beach. Well, the team not being quite as good as it was, let's be honest, but I know that the thrill has to still be there. And I know it's always there for you broadcasting these games, Joe. But there was something about getting off the bus with the Miami Hurricanes, and it blew me away. The the role of villain that you play everywhere you go, does that still exist for you? You know, um, it's funny. Probably not. Maybe. Maybe the players don't understand it. I'm not 100% sure. I liked when they had that role, so and I think the fans liked it as well. But uh, I think the administration looks at it as, geez, we've got to do everything we can to show we're a great university and we've yeah. got great players and great student-athletes and all of those things. So I'm not so sure that we're the, the villain anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we are. When, maybe they are when they go on the road. Maybe the, you know, the turnover chain I thought was one of the great stories of college yes. football last year. And uh, at the end of the year, it certainly uh, elicited some response from the opponents. I mean, in the Orange Bowl game, Paul Chris was uh, pretty voluble with his remarks of, of the turnover chain. Yep. Uh, Dabo Sweeney had a, uh, uh, a dance in the locker room after they beat Miami with the turnover chain. So maybe they can play that role, but I think uh, the university does the best they can to try to show that their players are, uh, are, are, are not villains. But when they were, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> 
I loved it. I mean, I loved the song. I loved everything. The turnover chain. I mean, we were talking about it all the time. I was playing it on Texans radio shows because I just thought it was hilarious and fun. And we were having a bad season, so I needed all the distraction I could get. Joe, tell me something else. And I don't want to be get off my lawn guy, but when I see the Hurricanes dressed in uniform colors that are not Miami colors, and I know that this is a thing with the kids and college teams changing colors and helmet colors and everything. But some of that really drives me nuts because because of tradition, because don't you want to brand yourself or is it just a recruiting thing and it's so important to excite the kids in that way? What are your thoughts on that subject? If they played every game at home wearing orange jerseys and white pants Mm -hmm. underneath the white helmet and every game on the road in white jerseys and orange pants underneath the white helmet, I would be very happy. I think that's all they need to do. I think that's their brand. Every now and then, I guess, you know, you can mix in the green jersey. But I, I always love when they played orange over white, white over orange. Uh, last year, we had green and white and white and green. And a couple of years ago, we had orange and green. We had every combination imaginable. Uh, they wore black on black last year. I give that one a pass. It did look pretty slick. And uh, uh, the fans seemed to like it a lot. And uh, the players seemed to... Uh, be ignited by it. Coach Rick likes wearing a black, so mm-hmm. I give that one a pass. But I would prefer uh, a program like Miami stick to their colors, which are orange and uh, orange and green. And in football, you know, I think their most iconic moments happened when they were wearing uh, orange over white or, or white over orange. Speaking of iconic moments, all right, let's get to this. What is other than winning championships? What are your most memorable games? Give me two or three of your most memorable games, and maybe win or lose because, you know, we were talking about 30 for 30 and the Catholics and convicts thing. I don't know if that's one of them for you, but how do you see it? Well, I would have to put uh, the Notre Dame game in 88 uh, near the top because it was at Notre Dame. It was a heartbreaking loss. It ended Miami's winning streak. What I loved about those teams, Dandy, and in those days, you would leave Miami or Coral Gables uh, at 10 o'clock on the charter, on a huge charter airplane. And then they would go right to the stadium for a walkthrough. And their walkthrough was anything but a walkthrough. It was like uh, touch football. And those players were so relaxed. It was hilarious to watch what they would do in the opposing stadium for, uh, uh, for their walkthrough. But I loved everything about the Notre Dame game in 88, right up until when Cleveland Gary fumbled. Uh, it meant so much to Notre Dame. It was a beautiful, clear, crystal clear, serene uh, autumn afternoon in South Bend. Their fans never sat down. Miami played terrible, seven turnovers in the game. Uh, but just the college atmosphere, the, the magnitude of the game, the intensity of the game, man alive, I would give anything to have one of those days back. Then the 89 game a year later in the Orange Bowl was pretty much the same thing, except it was Miami's version. Night game, under the stars, November, Orange Bowl, a cross between uh, uh, an English premier soccer game and and playing in the uh, Old Oakland Coliseum. Just uh, a crowd that was euphoric and crazy. So those two, uh, Florida State, uh, the wide right one game uh, in 91, one of my great memories of that one, and this tells a lot about Mark Rick. Uh, when the game was over and I was doing the, the color on the game, I'm going down the elevator to do, to do the locker room show uh, with our coaches. So I get on the elevator with Sonny Lubick 
and uh, Bob Ratkowski and I think Archeo. And in a strange twist of fate, we ended up on the same elevator with the Florida State coaches. So now Miami is, you know, can't wait for that elevator door to open up to get to the bottom. Florida State coaches uh, are crestfallen, but Mark Rick steps to the center of the elevator, and as we're going down, he says, hey, fellas, that was a great game. Everybody should be happy. Great game. Congratulations. I think that talks a little bit about, uh, about yeah. his character. And then, of course, uh, we did the Boston College game where Ed Reed uh, took the ball away from Matt Walters. That was a great memory. And mm-hmm. then one that, that really bothers me was uh, losing to Ohio State. Oh, gosh. Uh, that was a great game, overtime game. Everybody talks about the call, and I do think it was a bad call. But I also think that call has been a great diversion uh, for Miami on areas where they didn't play well, which was uh, their offensive line got dominated by Florida State in that game. Miami couldn't block anybody. And uh, uh came down to the last pass where Dorsey was hitting the chest. That, Dorsey actually got knocked out of that game. So those would be right at the, near the top. And, and Mike Lurvin against Florida State in 87 caught, uh, caught a uh, – 76-yard touchdown over the top of, of uh, uh, Deion Sanders down the far right sideline. That was a, a heavenly throw by uh, Steve Walsh for a touchdown. Joe, when the Hurricanes win the national championship for the first time with Bernie Kosar, uh, eventually Kosar and Marino, we all remember on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Marino back then, and I, I know you covered the Dolphins very closely for television, radio, etc., and you traveled for a long time to Miami Dolphins games. What was it like back then watching Marino? Because you look at the numbers now, and he was so head and shoulders above everybody else in TD passes and yardage. It was ridiculous. I mean, he took Dan Fouts and put those numbers on steroids. And back then, if you threw 25 touchdown passes, it was a lot of touchdown passes. But he shattered those marks. What was it like watching him emerge? And then at the same time, the University of Miami is really booming. Yeah, he was... uh... This town was upside down. How blessed were we? The Michelangelo of, of quarterbacks. I mean, I know everybody's going to argue, and, you know, Brady and Montana, uh, but watching Dan Marino, I don't know that you'll ever see a guy. And you might not, you're not going to see a guy like Brady either, but Marino, we've got to find some category to put him in mm-hmm. for his competitiveness, his arm strength, the – uh, his majestic throws. I mean, and, and at that time, he was just absolutely incredible. And, and traveling with him, he was a rock star, man. He, you know, you, you'd get to another city, and you'd have to take him in the back door, a police escort. It was like traveling with the Beatles with, with Dan Marino. Uh, he had you know, the good looks, the quarterback charm. And uh, I think the thing about Marino is that Every time the Dolphins were in a game, you thought he was going to win it, no matter how bad they were. And he was stuck with some bad teams. You always thought he was going to win the game somehow. Majority of the time he did. Uh, but, man, he was, he was a character. And uh, talk about a great competitor. Some people got offended when he would yell at players. Those blazing blue eyes would just slice right through you. It would be like, Man, if those eyes were machine guns, there would have been a lot of dead people. But he uh, he was just, oh, man, what a player, what a personality. Joe, tell me something. You've called a ton of games. 
And I remember talking to Don Bailey, who we both worked with. You still work with him. He does color commentary for the Hurricanes, and he played for Miami and everything. And you guys have been on the road in a ton of places. And I remember how impressed you were with Texas A&M here. And you've been to almost, I mean, maybe you've been to every college stadium in the country at this point. Give me two or three of the best places to go other than home for you. Because the Orange Bowl, when there was a huge game, there was really nothing like it. But you've been so many other places. Give me two or three of the best road shows for you. Well, I would have to say uh, South Bay, Indiana is a place, you know, you got to go there. Ann Arbor was uh, mm. 10,000, and uh, Miami played there twice. And, of course, had the great come from behind victory. So Ann Arbor was spectacular. You and I did a game at Penn State. Uh, I thought that was spectacular. Yeah. Texas A&M, I guess it's before they did uh, uh, some of the renovations, but that press box was moving back and forth, and uh, the traditions that they have at Texas A&M, uh, I, I always put that in my top five, as well as Florida State. Uh, I love doing games at Florida State. I just think uh, uh, the war chant, and you know you're always in for a great game there, and a very engaged crowd. So I put Florida State up there, and then uh, uh, only one time we did a game, and that was the Rose Bowl. But uh, if you get to do a game at the Rose Bowl with the the background there, um, that's just spectacular. The gorgeous scenery and uh, the setting of the Rose Bowl. So those would probably be my top five. All right, so, Joe, I'm going to shift gears on you here because you've done a ton of talk shows as well. You're a former program director of a sports talk radio station. So what is your opinion on sports talk in 2018 and the evolution of the art? I'll say that with a question mark, but the evolution of sports talk radio. Give me a few thoughts. Yeah, there's a lot of it, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody's trying to figure out how to be a little bit different. Uh, it's interesting to me that um, back when I was programming in the early 90s, we went away from guests and took only calls. And it was one call after the other. And the calls were kind of the show. But then as talk radio continued to evolve, I, either a laziness set in or I'm not sure exactly what happened. But then the callers seemed to hijack the show, and they ended up with their own platform. But they're not the show. It was supposed to be the host who were the show. Mm-hmm. And so when the callers sort of um, took command of the show, they didn't really pay attention. Maybe it was uh, a poor job of, of uh, you know, policing who should be on the air. I think that, that kind of hurt sports talk a little bit. Now we've evolved into no calls at all, mm-hmm. a lot of guests, and text messages and, uh, and stuff like that and, and using social media, I look for, when I listen in, tell me something I don't know. Teach me something. And I think uh, some of it, the, the mean spirit part of it, uh, probably is unnecessary uh, now. I mean, if that's the path you choose to take, okay. But um, I think there's enough of the miserable out there that uh, I would prefer to find people, if I'm going to listen now, uh, be smart. Mm-hmm. And, and this is an era where we got all the analytics and all that. I don't need to be bombarded with all the numbers, but I'm looking for somebody that's clever and smart and fun, and I probably don't need to be hit over the head or the, have the belligerence. I can look up a lot of stuff myself if I need to, but 
Uh, I like smart, and I like people that have great vocabularies. Joe, it's always a pleasure to catch up. I really enjoyed the conversation. So many memories. I you know, really obviously enjoyed working with you so much down in South Florida, and we got to catch up again real soon. Well, Danny, you become a legend in Texas. It's always <laughs> great to talk with you. And, uh, man, I thought you guys were off to a great start last year. I thought you had something with Deshaun Watson, and I hope he comes back and uh, takes you all the way. Yeah, How? Uh, just one quick uh, note here. Watson in college, I mean, you're in the ACC, so you saw him up close and personal, and how surprised were you that he got out of the gate like that? You know, he's one of those guys, he's like Eric Dickerson. When he runs, you always thought, is he going to run faster? And next thing you know, he's in, the, he, he's in the end zone or making a great play. He just glides. He just he mm-hmm. kills you with smoothness. And, uh, I mean, he put the numbers up at Clemson. He operated the offense. He played with poise and character and created big plays. And I, I thought he was well on his way to, to doing that and kind of beating the trend in the NFL. I think it's tough for college quarterbacks that run to survive. But uh, And then eventually he got hurt. But... Um, I think he's going to be a really good player uh, when he's 100% healthy. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Joe. We'll talk with you soon. All right, Vandy. Thank you. There he is, Joe Zagacki, voice of the Miami Hurricanes. You can follow him on Twitter, at Kane's Voice, at Kane's Voice, and I'm Texan's Voice. Interesting how all that works out. But I really enjoyed the conversation. Joe was a groomsman at my wedding with Don Bailey, who we also talked about in that podcast back in 2001, and he's a wonderful guy, does a great job, and it's always fun to catch up with him. And I think we'll do something like this again sometime because there are many more stories. And we really appreciate you listening, and check out all the other podcasts on HoustonTexans.com, iTunes, or whatever. Have a great day, and go Texans.